Berenham Sports. And as I mentioned, it's a Christmas cracker this week. Of course it is. And as always, it's because of your choosing. And this week, we are literally taking that title very seriously indeed. We are going to debate, dissect and analyse Christmas cracking scores. Because it's the scores, the goals, the tries, the wickets that decide matches, that get the fans going, the yes moments, and I know you've experienced them. And I'm looking forward to explaining some of my favourites with the legendary machine, Jason McKenna. But of course, 637, there's only so many that we can consider, and I know you've got your favourites. As always, this is your show, every bit, as much as it is as. So let us know, get involved, as so many have, and let us know your favourite scores. What are your Christmas cracking scores, goals, tries, uh, wickets, whatever it might be, let us know. Get in touch, email us, sport at radioverulam.com or the quickest, most efficient way to engage with us in the digital era is to drop us a tweet at Verulam Sports and keep involved because, as I say, and we mean it passionately, it's your show, every single bit, as much as it is as. But uh, right now, uh, it's always uh, one of the joys in my life to engage with the machine, Jason McKenna, to talk sports with him, for he is indeed a scholar of sports. And it's now the stage of sets. I hope that is a fair income welcome. But uh, Jason McKenna, happy Christmas and welcome to tonight's Sportcast. Yes, happy Christmas to you as well, Tony. And yeah, it's always a pleasure to share it with you. You know, a, a gift that keeps on giving. Maybe the Christmas gift that is just there all year round. But also we do have the great gift of our fantastic listeners engaging with social media. And I think they really like this one because, you know, who who doesn't love a bit of festivity? Who doesn't love a little bit of the, the positiveness around this time? Now, some people joined in with favourite finishes, cracking scores. Uh, people have just sent in quite a few different diverse choices, actually, across the sports. As always, my focus is, is usually on the football because, you know, that's the sport I know most about. Uh, I didn't put in any of my F1 or boxing choices, but they were included from the listeners here. So one of the first big ones, and I think you'll love this one, Tony, I think most England fans will, will be Johnny Wilkinson. Great finish, great scoreline. What a fantastic choice from the 2003 World Cup. Then somebody's mentioned the Ronaldo bicycle kick. Now, I wasn't sure which one they meant because obviously he did one with Juventus, but he's done so many fantastic goals in of uh, his whole career. It's just littered with amazing, breathtaking shots. Uh, so, you know, a fantastic pick to kind of reminisce about Ronaldo, one of the, the GOATs of football then mm-hmm. moving on to f1 as i said there one person uh, has mentioned hamilton's first ever formula one championship win because that was really down to a nail biter last win uh, at the brazil grand prix and then somebody else has mentioned talking of brazil brazil's finest senna with his victory over prost at japan now that one has a very funny story to it i'm sure you know it as well tony is the fact that Senna only had to make sure that Prost didn't finish that race. And, well, Senna did what he had to do on the tin. He made sure Prost did not finish. There was, of course, uh, an accident. No no intention at all there from Ac- Senna. Absolutely accident. Of course it was. <laughs> because the, the previous year, Prost had committed an accident at Japan to do exactly the same thing to assure that Senna wouldn't win. So, you know, these... Terrible, terrible coincidences happen. But another great pick for a favourite finish in sport. Then we talked about it because of your great interview, you know, with uh, with Chris Vokes, the England overtime win at the World Cup. And then the final one that somebody sent in is that Mike Tyson finished so many opponents with so many cracking shots and scores. I think that was a great one to finish on. But so many memories there littered in there. What, what do you think of those choices there, Tony? As always, massively impressed, and as always, appreciate you getting involved. Continue to do so. Tweet us at Verum Sports, or as so many people do, email us sports at radioverum.com. It's a pleasure to have you with us, and so many great memories. Jason, I love there that we've uh, introduced the coincidences and the accidents, quote unquote, uh, in that wonderful rivalry between Prost and Senna, because we've spoken sporting rivals, haven't we, in the past? And they really do illuminate sports. 
uh, bringing the best and occasionally the worst out of great competitors. And the uh, Senna Prost, two divergent characters, uh, two divergent racing styles, but basically united by a fearsome uh, work ethic, uh, will to win, and amazing natural talent to boot. And they really did have a wonderful rivalry. I love that shout. Iron Mike Tyson as a boxing fan, you know, when he burst onto the scene, he became the youngest heavyweight champion all time, surpassing the greatest Muhammad Ali. Uh, you know, he just changed boxing. Uh, and he, under his the tutelage of the matter, he was supreme and an absolute knockout machine. Uh, who knows how his career trajectory may have gone had the matter not passed away. Uh, love that shout. But there are so many great ones. Ronaldo, interestingly, and again, you know, these days when we say Ronaldo, I think this is credit to um, CR7, that we just instantly think of uh, Cristiano. But the original Ronaldo, uh, all-time, World Cup's second all-time top goal scorer, uh, the Brazilian great, was also an incredible talent. Uh, played multiple clubs, a score of great goals. Uh, for me, one of the best also all time. But of course, Ronaldo's uh, mesmeric form and achievements in the game have really meant that they, these days when we say Ronaldo, there's really only one image that comes to mind, even though I still fondly recall what you may call Ronaldo Mark One. Uh, but just brilliant suggestions there. Love them all and continue to get involved. We're talking Christmas cracking scores, tries, knockouts, uh, wickets, whatever it may be. Uh, I want to hear your favorite scores. Maybe they don't even necessarily have to be the best. It might just have been a moment that took you back or maybe sealed the deal. But Christmas cracking scores because we are in the festive season. you got to love that before we continue on and uh, debate dissect and get to the root of this from uh, jason and my own perspectives obviously so many christmas cracking goals in the premier league and it's incumbent on me to just briefly encourage you to get involved with our premier league prediction leagues the rules are dead simple if you get the exact correct scoreline in any given match throughout the Premier League season, chalk yourself up three points. Give yourself one point if you get the correct result, but maybe he's out by a goal or two. And there's nothing in this game, no point, if you get the result completely wrong. But I know. I just know. You're a punditry genius, aren't you? I can see your face. I know you get them all right every single week. The scoreline's correct each and every game, each and every single week. Well, come on. I'm encouraging you to show us. Show us your talent. Show us your punditry skills. Tweet us at Verum Sport. Email us sport at radioverum.com with your Premier League predictions each and every single Premier League weekend. Uh, the current scores on the Verum Sports League uh, Premier League Prediction League doors run like this. I'll tell you what, bit of a change at the top. Uh, in reverse order, Neil Stock is currently still fourth, uh, but he had a good week last week. He's up to 63 points. Uh, it's myself taking it slow and steady. Uh, and the machine, Jason McKenna, currently both equal third with 74 points, but well in contention. The voice of the Saints, Graham Griffin. I'm sure you're going to enjoy listening to him commentate live all season on the Saints. Uh, Graham Griffin has 81 points. But the ace man, Matthew Turvey, I tell you what, he had an ace weekend last weekend out and he has moved up to the top of the league where he was at the start, started the league sprinting and he's moved into lead almost at the halfway point. He's up to 85 points. But I know you can do better. I just know you can do better. So show us three points for getting the scoreline dead right. One point to get the um, right results. But maybe it's not quite accurate on the score. I may be out by a goal or two. No point. Nothing at all, of course, if you get it dead wrong. And I know you can do better. Show us. Tweet at Verulam Sport. Email us sport at radioverulam.com. But now, on tonight's Sportcast, I'm going to, uh, with great delight, hand it across to the machine, Jason McKenna, for his very first Christmas cracking score. <laughs> No, it's so exciting to talk about this. And I do wax lyrical quite often about Barcelona and Messi. And I just have to do it again. It's, it's another opportunity here. Now, we're talking about favourite finishers in all sports. And, well, 
I have to talk about one of my favourite finishers in the finishing of probably the greatest season ever in terms of club football. So I'm talking about Lionel Messi and his goal against Manchester United in the 2011 Champions League final or just that whole final game because it sealed what many can describe as the perfect season. And it, it was the perfect season because they walked away with every trophy on possible that, that, that they could. And uh, Messi himself actually picked up the Ballon d'Or. It was sensational stuff. And even in that match, Messi was awarded man of the match. Now, just to give context to this, this isn't, you know, hyperbole. This is really probably the, the crowning glory of any team ever in history they won the champions league their own league their own domestic cup their own uh, what we would call like the the charity shield they won the copper europa they won the club world championship i mean they couldn't do any more basically whatever they were entered into they were there they won it it was ridiculous kind of stuff but mm -hmm. yeah moving on to to actually looking at it 147 goals scored 36 against them. They were so good defensively. They were so good attacking-wise. And I think what even added to this amazing story is even the way that they got to the final. Now, Jose Mourinho had been brought in to Real Madrid almost to be the pantomime villain for Pep Guardiola. He was to play the anti-Barcelona football. He was to be everything anti. And this season... No, he, he didn't get the better of them. And the big decider was actually the game leading up to this final was the all-Spanish El Clasico final where they beat uh, Real Madrid in what was, you know, a bit of a bloodbath. It was fouls left, right and centre. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo scored a goal, but then Messi did as well. It ended, uh, you know, in, in such kind of furore, but they did it. Barcelona got there. Now, this isn't this wasn't their first, you know, Champions League final. They'd done it in 2008 actually to play mm -hmm. against Manchester United then. And you know, when when they won it in sorry, 2009, um the team kind of bucked the trend. It was unexpected that they would win the final, whereas this season was the best football probably many people had ever seen in the history of club football. Mm -hmm. You know, on the world stage, Spain as a nation had just won the Euros, had just won the World Cup. They were playing the best international football maybe the world has ever seen. And then at the club level, Barcelona were doing it with the, themselves. They, they had the midfield trio of Spain, of Iniesta, Xavi and Busquets. Mm -hmm. They had Messi, David Villa. Uh, they had Pedro in their front line and then in their back line as well they were littered with talent they had PK the uh, the brilliant kind of Spanish player himself again another regular in the team Xavi the the leader on the pitch Danny Elves who had this amazing telepathic connection with Messi Victor Valdez in goal I mean this was a team littered with talent and they'd bought well as well with Mascherano kind of joining that back line as well. So it was exciting, exciting stuff. And then why I get so, you know, wound up by this final, why I get so, uh, you know, smiling, thinking about it, filled with joy. It was a 3-1 win over. Uh, and, and you don't really kind of see 3-1 win, win, uh, wins over in these finals. It, it's not always a big scoring mm -hmm. affair. They're normally cagey events. Champions League finals but Barcelona didn't do that they didn't sit back they didn't go there just to eke out a victory they went there to play they went there to attack and they, they kind of you know <laughs> they, they, they surprised the opposition because again they went in there not to to play nice football or, or to defend deep they wanted to win the match in the most glorious way possible. Now, this was also at Wembley, so in many ways, Manchester mm -hmm. United were a home team. But even with the glorious Manchester United team that was then uh, one of the, the favourites again to win the trophy, they themselves were littered with talent. Rooney mm -hmm. at his height of talent. You had Carrick in there. You had Van der Sar. 
Barcelona made it look easy. Uh, mm. The first goal was scored by Pedro. Then the next goal, which is the one that I wanted to focus on, was a lovely dizzying run by the team, passing through the Man United, cutting them open like a hot knife through butter. It was delicious kind of stuff. And mm. then uh, Messi slots it away. It just... It was so, so good. It's so entertaining. And it's one of those finals that you can watch back happily uh, and enjoy. You know, it's it's one of the ones for the highlight reel. And then the final mm. goal was scored by David Villa in the 69th minute. It sealed the deal. Rooney did score in the 34th minute, but realistically, they weren't in that game. It was the game for Barcelona. Uh, they they tried to, to to counter them, but you just couldn't. That team, as I said there, the midfielder, Busquets, Iniesta, Xavi, who, in fact, all three of them had the assists for the goals, which added to this narrative of this amazing team that was forged in Spain, that they grew up Mm -hmm. together through that Catalan youth system, uh, providing for the team here. It it just, it it adds to the mythology of this Barcelona team. And yeah, the, the amazing thing is, is yes, obviously Barcelona in years subsequent to that went on to win victories. But what I would say is they didn't have it in such a domineering fashion. Mm -hmm. And also this was almost the end of the Pep Guardiola era. You know, this was coming to to the end of the time. Um, Sadly, you know, he left the club soon after that because of the the new election of the new boss in in charge of it. So I think I've mentioned it before, but Sandra Russell was elected president of the club and he and Pep Guardiola had very different ideas of how the, the club was going to be taken into the future. Even before this Barcelona season started, uh, mm-hmm. the club sold Yaya Torre. They sold uh, Dimitri Trigensky, who was one of... Pep Guardiola would admit himself he wasn't a firm start. He wasn't going to start ahead of uh, Puyol or um, uh, uh, PK. But th- the point was was he was no longer having the calls on the football. And so mm-hmm. for me again, there's almost this this slight sadness tied up with this final win. Yes, Guardiola went on to win the league the next year. He he went on to dominate you know, the football in his own country, but he didn't have another European crown and he still hasn't. And there's there's mm-hmm. these questions, you know, can Pep win without Messi? But when he did win with Messi, when he did bin, win with Barcelona, it was some of the best football, if not the best football we've ever seen. So that's why I mentioned this as one of my cracking scores, favourite finishes, because... All those goals in the final were beautiful, beautiful team football. Exactly what I want to see echoing the total football that I talk about with Cruyff, with Barcelona, uh, with Holland of that 70s era, which died out, was resurrected by Guardiola, but then died out again in Barcelona once Guardiola Mm -hmm. left. So that's why I mentioned that as my first cracking score, Tony. Just love it, Jason. And again, really wonderful to provide the history and the context to that. I remember that game distinctly, the, the final itself. Um, it was actually um, the, the, the night uh, of my good friend of mine, Stag do, and we kind of watched that and then headed on out and don't remember much of the night after that. Um, but you're dead right, really do remember just the dominancy of the, um, the Barcelona team and obviously their main man, Messi. Just real quick, because focusing in really on that aspect, the messy magicianship. But I'm pleased that you gave the game its full context. And whilst you are dead right to observe and to remind us all of just how totally dominant Barcelona were, I was pleased that you brought up the fact that Ronaldo, uh, excuse me, um, Rooney got a goal, got the equalising goal. Because for me, that was one of his finest performances at uh, club and indeed country level, because uh, you, you know that was a good goal that he scored. And again, it, you know, the, the, the there really was only ever going to be one winner in this two uh, horse race based on performance. But Ronaldo, uh, Rooney that day seemed to exemplify all the qualities that was Wayne Rooney. His energy was remarkable. He was all over the pitch. 
And, you know, I thought he was outstanding in defeat that day. And it's one of my favourite Wayne Rooney performances. And I am I'm sure, as you know, many listeners will know, a big uh, advocate of how powerful Rooney uh, was capable of being. Great performance. But you're right, Jason, that was all about the Barcelona style. Um, it was just magical to behold the the, the movement uh, their energy themselves and again the mesmeric messy getting it done but jason i love that you brought that up but you really could just pick any messy goal almost he seems to just score sublime goals but with such consistency uh we don't really have the time to go into this in depth but I've got to ask you, earlier on today, uh, one of the listeners mentioned Ronaldo, and of course, we now mean CR7, uh, Cristiano. I've got to ask you briefly, your thoughts on Messi, Ronaldo, and who is the number one? I know you probably lean towards Ronaldo. We've spoken about that. And if we look at brute stats, I think Ronaldo is ahead, uh, although there's not much between him. But... In terms of just straight fights, if you would, metaphorically speaking, Ronaldo versus Messi, 34 matches. Ronaldo has nine victories, 18, uh, 16, uh, 18 goals, one assist, been nine draws. Whereas Messi, actually, in terms of the uh, one-on-one, game-on-game record versus Ronaldo, has the edge, is in the ascendancy. Um, 16 victories for Messi. Uh, 21 goals, uh, three ahead of Ronaldo, and 12 assists to only one by Ronaldo. Is that just top-line tip of the iceberg and just that one kind of bit of data uh, picked out a bit unfair in this wonderful, rather subjective comparison? What do you think and what's your take on the perennial Ronaldo versus Messi debate? (laughs) I love it, but also hate the, this debate because I think sometimes, uh, and obviously I'm not including you in this, Tony, you know, because I, I know that you appreciate both these players, but sometimes I think there's the, the groups of like what I would call Messi and Ronaldo mm-hmm. fanboys where they go, oh, Messi's so good. I, I can't like Ronaldo and vice versa. So, but I do think it's it's good fun to have genuine discussions. You know, we've had it, previously is George mm-hmm. best is it Pele Maradona whatever I think it's a totally legitimate thing and I think what actually legitimizes this a little bit more is they're both playing at the same time in the same leagues yeah. um, but Messi versus Ronaldo I mean if I'm looking at it from a, a purely you know footballing and physiological sense I would pick Ronaldo all day because obviously he's the bigger stronger faster I would say Mm -hmm. individual you know he's going to score you more varied types of goals and can be included in all types of different situations because of just his physicality but then on the flip side Messi has this ability to you know truly be magic it's Mm -hmm. the the lovely alliteration with his his, the the words uh, and the letters in his name but he truly is magic what he does on the pitch some of the Mm -hmm. things you wouldn't even be able to imagine and then he does it it's like creating a new color but on a pitch it's ridiculous stuff uh i just think my my conclusion of the two is if i was to choose in a physiological footballing sense i would choose ronaldo if i was to choose a teammate i would probably choose messi uh, because he's going to assist me but my final conclusion always is i just feel so blessed that I've lived yep. through this hero to see both of them. But I do genuinely believe as well, and this may come as a shock, this may be argued against by listeners and, and other people alike, but I think that this is just the beginning. I think Ronaldo and Messi set a benchmark, but I think mm-hmm. we will be shocked in a few seasons when we see a lot of these records beaten because my belief is, again, bringing data, bringing science more into football will just mm-hmm. fine-tune these individuals more. It's like having the fact that we've got the shortest uh, F1 cars in history, but they're breaking records all the time. Yep. They, they're filled to the brim with fuel, which hadn't been before. Um, and you'd say, oh, well, they should be slower because they're much heavier, but they're not. So I think footballers are going to 
become more improved as as teams mm -hmm. build players uh squads around players as they use data to kind of go well we need to do this kind of play or this kind of ball almost like american mm -hmm. football even more tactics and set plays and all this kind of thing uh with marginal gains so i think that will be a huge kind of change in football and also probably goal records will be broken as well because i say the swear word that is of the past couple of seasons, VAR, I think penalties will be given more, free kicks will mm -hmm. be given more in dubious situations. And so I think that will contribute as well. I'm not sure if that's something that you agree with there, Tony. I think it's a good shout. We're going to talk VAR a bit later when I introduce my final uh, selection uh, for Christmas cracking scores. Uh, great points there, Jason. I think their bar will be raised across all sports. And that's the nature of sport. That's the nature of competition. That's the nature of life. And that's why we love it. But we'd love your views on Christmas cracking scores across all sports. Of course, we'd love your views on Messi versus Ronaldo. And I know you stand in one of those camps. Get involved. Tweet us at Verum Sport. Email us sports at radioverum.com. And keep involved. It's your show. Each and every single bit as much as it is ours. Get involved. But now I'm introducing my first uh, Christmas cracking score. And this is, i got to tell you, just, just thinking about this fills me with glee. i got to tell you, it's a little bit before my time, but uh, I mentioned in a few podcasts a little while ago when we were talking favourite commentators and I got to eulogise about the legendary Bill McLaren that I used to adore, literally uh, ran out, ruined this video, Bill's Best Bits. And this was certainly one of the best bits in Bill's Best Bits. I'm taking us back to 1973, January the 27th, the Cardiff National Stadium, where the Barbarians overcame New Zealand in Rugby Union by 23 points to 11. Just briefly, uh, many listeners will, I'm sure, have heard of myself and the voice of the old Albanians, Brian Quinn, eulogising about the Barbarians. They're a rugby uh, tradition, really. They're a great thing. I'm delighted that in a modern world, there's still a place for them. But essentially, they're a scratch team made up of uh, invitational players from all over the world. Uh, so obviously, uh, even in this well pre-professional era, way back in the early 70s, um, it was, again, not much time for them to unite, get to know one another, uh, come up with plays, etc., etc. Now, the spirit of the Barbarians is very much to play open rugby, try to keep the ball alive. And I'm going to eulogize about this try just in a moment because that's my Christmas cracker. Um, but that is the spirit, that is the tradition, and that tradition still maintains, lives strong in 2020. I'm delighted that that is the case. Um, the final of the tradition of the Barbars is that they must select in their 15 one player who's not yet appeared at international level. And every single player has the famous Barbarians jersey. Of course, they do. Uh, it's got a wonderful uh, iconography of the uh, uh, BA to signify the uh, Barbarians, and hence why they're often referred to as the Barbars. And it's an iconic jersey, black and white, uh, white hoops. And again, just, again in, just to put you into the picture of this wonderful rugby tradition, every player wears the socks of their club side. So although they've come from all over the world, they're united, they're playing in the same jersey, but representing and kind of codifying the fact that they are a scratch team, an invitational team. Each player's uh, socks are unique to the club they play for. So that still persists even in hyper-professional 2020, and I love that tradition. But this try, taking us back to that wonderful game, 1973, January the 27th, at the wonderful Cardiff National Stadium, uh, was the opening score, and it was just mad mesmeric. The game itself is widely considered to be one of the best matches ever played, and the try was scored by maybe the greatest player of all time. I know that's subjective. I know it's open to debate, but you talk to many rugby men and women and they will echo that one. Gareth Edwards, one of the most complete players of all time. Of that, there is no question. Uh, but his try is often described as the best try ever, this opening score for the Barbarians in what was their first ever victory over New Zealand, this fixture. 
and that's not just me saying that if you're listening to this and if you've never encountered this try many listeners i'm sure will instantly know what i'm talking about but if you've never encountered this try you can find it very easily by quite simply putting into youtube best try ever so again that's not just me saying this this is why wildly widely and uh, very commonly dubbed the greatest try ever scored and it was a scintillating score coming in the opening few minutes of the game. And it, as I mentioned, helped the Barbarians secure their first ever victory over New Zealand. Um, they've actually only since got one more win. So in the history of New Zealand versus the Barbarians, it's eight wins to New Zealand, two victories and a draw for the Barbarians. So this really was an historic result. And it was started, this fabulous try, many call it, as I say, the best try ever, from the Barbarians' own line, where the mercurial Welsh fly half, Phil Bennett, um, just scampered back to pick the ball up, which had been hoofed forward by the New Zealand winger, Brian Williams, with dazzling footwork. Seriously, it's some of the best sidestepping I have ever seen, uh, both in video and subsequently having watched a lot of rugby live and on TV since. Um, I mean, it looks as though he is auditioning for Strictly Come Dancing with that kind of footwork. It's brilliant. He quite literally leaves four New Zealanders clutching at thin air. Uh, Bennett then fed the fearsome Welsh and British Lions fullback, JPR Williams, who, quick aside, this is one of those high-achieving people, uh, I just love this, as well as being one of the greatest fullbacks all time, a winner with the Lions, a winner here with the Barbarians, uh, a winner uh, with many, many Grand Slams for Wales. He was a doctor. It's a remarkable something. And also, again, let's not forget an amateur rugby player. Everybody in this team was amateur at this time. Anyway, JPR Billy, uh, Williams picked up the ball, showing that tremendous strength. He managed to offload despite being scragged around the neck. At this stage, the ball was still deep in the Barbarian's own half, but with typical Barbarian's flair. And again, that flair, that desire, that spirit, that philosophy, if you must, to keep the ball alive is really in the DNA of the Barbarians. It's what they are there to do. And they lived, it was embodied, personified, if you would, in this wonderful mesmeric try. Uh, typical Barbarians flair this was. The ball was exchanged between four quick passes and bursts from John Pullin, who was the only non-Welshman involved in this scintillating score. John Paul in the English hooker, um, who passed it on to Captain John Dawes, who fed Tom David onto that other Welshman, the great number eight, Derek Quinnell. Quinnell funneled the final pass, which I will say, if you watch it back, might have been a little bit forward. There was no VAR. There was no uh, kind of a referee involvement other than that these days, in those days. And it was very on the cusp. Nevertheless, this pass was not actually intended for graphics, but the opportunistic Edwards had seen where the, the play had been uh, developing to. And at belting pace, at top speed, he plucked this Quinell uh, pass out of the air and he finished with true aplomb, diving in at the corner. Now, that entire length of the field move took just 22 seconds from the moment that Phil Bennett picked up the ball, dazzled uh, four New Zealand defenders with wonderful footwork, and all of the interchange that was culminated and finished off with such style by the wonderful Gareth Edwards, just 22 seconds from start to glorious finish. Now, briefly, as I mentioned already, we have uh, spoken about the wonderful uh, commentary and my massive appreciation for the iconic Bill McLaren. But the great man that day was recovering from flu. And so two hours before the game actually kicked off, um, it was another uh, commentator who provided the voice to this phenomenal move. A great ex-Welsh fly half himself, Cliff Morgan. And to be fair, this is one of the most glorious uh, pieces of sports commentary that you can ever care to discover. I would encourage everybody, seriously, just type into YouTube or any other search engine functionality, best try ever. You'll find this 1973 Barbarians score 
and the commentary is sublime. Uh, I'm going to do it verbatim, but I'm not going to do it in his voice, but just I urge you to experience this. Uh, Kirkpatrick to Williams. This is great stuff. Phil Bennett, uh, chased by Alistair Scowen. Brilliant. Oh, that's brilliant. John Williams. Ryan Williams, pull in. John Dawes, great dummy. To David, Tom David, the halfway line. Oh, that's brilliant by Quinnell. This is Gareth Edwards. A dramatic start. What a score. And what a score it was. Many people still refer to it as the greatest try of all time. Edwards himself recalls the game really funnily. Of course he does. He said, it's a match that will live with me forever. People tend to remember the first four minutes of the game because of that try. But what they forget is the great deal of good rugby played afterwards. This try uh, and this wonderful moment of sporting excellence uh, back in 2002 was voted 20th in the list of 100 greatest sporting moments. It's scintillating. Um, it's often hyper-romanticized because, again, there is a strong case to be made that the final pass was forward. There was certainly at least one high tackle in there. And in this modern era of rugby, they may have been called up short. That try may never have existed in the record books. But in those days, in this era, it all stood. And I'm delighted that it did. And I would encourage you once again to check this try out because it is a cracking score fit to live in our Christmas cracking scores chat. Just quickly, I guess, Jason, your thoughts. <laughs> no, I love the, the way that you've even described the commentary because, again, you know, with our greatest commentators chat, it is those moments when you watch it, it, it just adds to the experience. But, yeah, it, it sounds like a truly amazing. I've loved this little education here because I didn't really know much about the Barbarians either. And the most fascinating thing that I took from that was the, the lovely tradition that is still carried on of them wearing the uh the socks of their you know respective clubs i think it's a, a lovely thing to have and if i'm honest i think there was some i wish there was something like that in football it's always you know the the kind of fun question of world 11 or or uh europe versus america you know something like that would be great to see in football but also just just to ask you as well i mean for me, it's truly, truly fascinating that this is, I suppose, some of the, the best or biggest and the best. It's a bit like the Lions uh, when they go on their tour of, mm -hmm. um, of South Africa. Um, what, what always blows my mind is New Zealand is such a small country. And yet even with the biggest and the best from all the British mm -hmm. islands, they still dominate. Um, is it just because rugby is in their blood is that the story that will never be combated you know will will europe or even england even though it's got a larger population will it be able to to kind of combat that new zealand dominance you know it's such a good question and to really answer that i'm not really the best place to do that as much as i love rugby and as much as i can uh, give some theories on it and i will I think you need to go out to New Zealand to truly appreciate how much rugby is a part of their culture and their way of life. I mean, we all know the hacker, don't we? But that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Rugby is in their DNA and it is such an aspect, such a huge aspect of their kind of cultural identity that I can't, as I say, comment on with massive authority because as much as I, work, I have it on my quote-unquote bucket list to visit um, New Zealand, uh, I've never been there. The closest analogue I've got is actually Wales. And obviously we mentioned there um, so many of the great Welsh names. Gareth Edwards completed the score, but there was uh, four other Welshmen involved in the movement, only one Englishman, uh, John Paul in the hooker involved. And rugby, if you ever go to Wales, and I've been many times, and Cardiff is a wonderful venue in a wonderful uh, city. Again, you just strike up a conversation and rugby will come up very quickly. Okay. And, you know, people get it wrong. This is one of the things I love about rugby as a sport culturally. Okay. Obviously, there is that sense that everybody wants to be England, et cetera, et cetera, for historical reasons, socio-political socio reasons, which are deep and varied. But 
if you just strike up an honest conversation with a Welshman about rugby, you've got a friend. Uh, but the point is, it's the closest analogue um, that I've experienced personally to New Zealand in that, that passion, that sheer joy that rugby brings to, to, to the Welsh country and culture. But it is uh, taken to, you know, another level, another stratosphere in New Zealand. And it's in, in the same way as, you know, here, football is the beautiful game. Football is our number one sport. It still competes for the psyche of so many. And, uh, you know, whereas in New Zealand, you're born, you're almost straight away get handed a rugby ball, if that makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah. It is just, it's, it's not just equivalent, it is almost akin to religion, but for more nuanced reasons. It is just a core aspect of what it is to be a New Zealander. Uh, and that passion is phenomenal and it's obviously found its way to uh, develop into an aura and you know people just and we've spoken about almost a sense of fear sometimes of the the psychology of pressure that often builds up Uh, but in New Zealand it's just a badge of pride you know they are eminently aware of the history of the people who've worn their jersey before them and they need to honour that memory, that legend, to be worthy of donning the um, black and silver fern. So, yeah, it's a great, great question. And there are many, many, many levels to it. I'd love to talk about it in more depth. But honestly, I can't say much more because, like I say, I've never actually been to New Zealand. You truly need to go there to even begin to truly uh, fathom this relationship with the sport of rugby that is embedded in their psyche. It sounds a bit like almost uh, you have to go on a religious excursion to Lords or something. I mean, I, I truly believe it. And one of my friends actually was lucky enough to be able to teach rugby out in New Zealand. And, and this is exactly the sort of thing that he attested to. It's, it's more than a game. It's more than just, you know, oh, we're playing rugby. It is basically a lifestyle um yeah and and it, it you know encompasses everything but you know it's not like a a, a bad thing that it encompasses you know that it, it's brings them pride it brings them great joy mm-hmm. and maybe bring it back to your point as well that you've said many many times <laughs> i know it's kind of almost an obvious but you've said it so many times winners do win and mm-hmm. i think also this mythology around new zealand maybe bringing in the hacker as well the fact that the club uh, the, the fact that the country almost has this mythology to it makes it i wouldn't say easier to win but it facilitates that amazing psychology that they can and should win against anybody and everybody so yeah it's it's a great one to to kind of analyze but Jason, I know you're chomping at the bit to unleash your second choice in this uh, particular conversation. Hit me up. This one that I'm going to talk about now is is more of the emotive connection and uh, maybe kind of, you know, with, with your sporting commentary's choice. Not always the biggest, not always the best, maybe not the most recognised. But for me, this goal kind of almost signifies the birth of mm-hmm. modern Jason in many senses. <laughs> uh, th- this was the moment that I watched and just fell in love with football. The the moment that I realised, wow, that you know, I'm going to be an Arsenal fan till the day that I die. And it's it's a weird one because you know, at, at the time when you when you live in these moments, it, it's almost surreal, but. Uh, I did kind of almost realise that as a, a wee young lad, I didn't realise the magnitude of it, but I did realise that this one was going to be special. So I was about four years old, 1998, and Arsenal were coming to the end of a brilliant season. You know, Arsene Wenger had come into the club the year before. Arsene who? Well, Arsene, you, you know who he is now. He's on the lips of every kind of sports pundit. He's on the mind of every team that he's playing against. He masterminded a fantastic season for Arsenal. And, you know, before he'd come to the club, Arsenal had not the greatest of times. Um, 
the the club were toing and throwing between managers you know we'd had the the unpleasantness of the departure mm-hmm. of George Graham then the Bruce Rioch era that hadn't really fashioned too much and and Arsenal had kind of lost their identity in many senses because they weren't as as brilliant as they once once were and then this this you know as i said not many people knew who he was this frenchman came to the club reassured everybody brought these amazing new ideas of how to mm-hmm. train how to 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 get involved and what also again mythologized it was it was the 100th season of competitive football for arsenal you know it, mm-hmm. it was almost like it was meant to be arsenal at arsenal one mm-hmm. in their 100th season or on the centenary so a bit before this and it's still weird to me to this day that the FA Cup final was played before the final game of the season in these days but Arsenal had won uh, the FA Cup final to Newcastle United um, one that uh, I think even Alan Shearer to this day is still a little bit annoyed and cut up about mm-hmm. you know one of the elusive kind of uh, trophies for that man but it was the beginning of what was going to be the second of the doubles in the club's history. We did mm-hmm. then move on and win a third in 2001-2002. But this is, you know, a fairly big event. And it, it was huge, huge stuff because when Wenger came in, there was questions. And even the, the players themselves almost laughed at him with with his funny look and, and the way he was. There was big horn-ringed glasses almost that he had <laughs> exactly, initially. It yeah. wasn't there. and. And just quickly, I, I want to say from memory, was it Grampus 8 out in Japan that he came from? Indeed, yeah. It was It was Grampus 8. Before that, it'd been Monaco. Uh, I can't remember but before that. I've, I've just finished this autobiography, so I should remember this stuff. But um, it, he, he, he was just, you know, unseeming. A lot of people... He, he wasn't the traditional British manager <laughs> as well. You know, of course, he, he was French. He had this je ne sais quoi about him, this gentlemanness, mm-hmm. but also this professorial kind of enigma to him, which, mm. you know, I'm not denigrating the British managers at the time because there were some great ones, um, but there was th- this difference about him, which we now see mm. all the time with with the managers in the Premier League. You know, the fact that back then he was one of the only foreigners and now mm-hmm. it's more... there's everybody else is kind of foreign and there's only a few English players, uh, managers, sorry. So what what I'm saying is this was a really big season for Arsenal. This re-announced them to be mm-hmm. at the top of the league. And one of my favourite players, if not my favourite ever Arsenal player, was top goalscorer that season, Dennis Perkamp with 16 in the, the league and in all competitions, 22. But Ian Wright had also come back, you mm-hmm. know, he wasn't looking good. He'd, he'd even been tempted with moving away from the club. Uh, there were some great signings as well. Mark Overmars from Ajax, mm-hmm. Emmanuel Petit. There was, it was all looking good. Um, the, the club were knocked out early of the UEFA Cup, but that was fine because, you know, March through to May time, the club closed what seemed an impossible gap with Manchester United they uh, they drew back and then in the end they went on to win the league title and mm-hmm. what I love is again it's almost kind of the ceiling thing like I said with the Man- uh, Messi goal against Manchester United it was it was the final icing on the cake but this was the moment you know in the Everton game 1998 the season was basically won and this was one of those glorious days at Highbury in May, mm-hmm. just just the beginnings of summer. And I remember them so brilliantly. You know, I, I used to go mm. with my dad in those games because he used to work at Arsenal at the time. So we'd get to go to some of the matches. We'd get to, to experience these days. With a spring in my step, I'd go to these. Unfortunately, we, we weren't at the stadium that day, but we did go and celebrate after once the league was won. Mm-hmm. I tell you that. Um, but yeah, the, it was just a fantastic memory of just seeing the man that was Mr. Arsenal managed mm-hmm. by the man that would become Mr. Arsenal. Um, 
just, you know, he never really scored goals. He was always at the back. He was always kind of dominating in those positions. And that's where he was best. You know, Tony Adams, he was a leader on the pitch, captain fantastic, but you didn't really see Tony go up front. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was this bursting run. He was through on goal and he scores it, settles it into the back of net. It was gorgeous. It was sumptuous. It was a striker's finish. Where the hell did that yeah. come from, Tony? And it was fantastic. And and at that moment, you know, it calmed it down. Yeah, the, the final goal scored it in that game. It, it wasn't really uh, a worry because it was a 4-0 win anyway. But mm-hmm. it, it was kind of like, you know, when Heskey scored against Germany, even Adams scored in that game. You just knew how good we were, even if Adams scored. He was allowed to make the run. The The, the stadium was full. We had our record attendance actually in mm-hmm. that game for that season, 38,269 people. It was glorious. And and for Arsenal fans, and for me alike, as, as a, a new young Arsenal fan, with my oversized mm-hmm. Arsenal shirt on that my dad had bought me, it was, it was actually a large shirt and intended for a man, but you know they didn't have any boys' shirts at the time in, in the club shop. I, I felt a sense of hope. I was like, wow, Arsenal mm-hmm. can go on to do things. It was great. And I just fell in love from that moment it with football you know then I was kind of addicted I was always watching it mm-hmm. always asking my dad to bring me but before that you know I was too young I was I was three to one years old I, I didn't really even know I was always kicking a ball but at that moment there I was like this is for me you, you know what I mean Tony it was one of 100%. the revolution 100%. revelation moments <laughs> And they are so important, but sport provides that, doesn't it? And I love that, Jason. It's so uh, emotive, and you've really captured that wonderful moment in time, a glorious moment from the Arsenal perspective. But just objectively, uh, I think any fan of sports appreciates exactly what that moment represented. Again, as you say, Mr. Arsenal, Tony Adams, scoring I want to say from memory, which is not always the truest of uh, masters, but I want to say from memory, his defensive mate, Steve Bold, put him through. And that kind of, for me, represented a groundswell of philosophical change, um, which would become a force. As to whether the Wenger era went on too long, Tonight, it's moot because this was its inception and it was glorious. Um, And I just think you've really captured a wonderful moment and certainly a Christmas cracking rare score from Mr. Adams, uh, the Arsenal legend. But he himself, Tony Adams, has gone on record very openly to say that um, Wenger actually added years to his career. Nowadays, we know and we appreciate all the sports science, the data analysis, uh, all the different uh, just attention to detail and the minutiae uh, that goes into the game. And it's just de rigueur. It's normal. But it was many ways revolutionary. And Wenger uh, was instrumental in bringing that here to the Premier League. For me, that will always be his legacy. But Jason, I want to ask you this, um, sort of panning past that wonderful goal and that wonderful moment, era uh, starting, if you would. Give me some insight from your perspective as an Arsenal fan about the role that David Dean played in taking a big punt on Wenger, who, as you brilliantly explained, uh, was a very left-field choice, certainly not necessarily on the top of most people's lips at that time. Again, with those horn-rimmed glasses, that uh, professorial gait, certainly not uh, the number one choice, certainly a million miles away uh, from the um, previously most successful Arsenal era under George Graham. So, yeah, just give me an idea of Dean's influence in that moment and that wonderful Arsenal era? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, just before we move into that, I want to say you're dead right. There was Steve Bold that played the ball through, so great memory there. And also, I'd, I'd even add to a point that in terms of many players in the squad, um, you, you said about their playing life, but maybe in terms of their actual longevity in mm-hmm. human life, maybe Wenger saved a lot of them because of the alcoholism that was rife yeah. at the club. And this, I think, really links to David Dean as well. Is uh, 
I think David Dean had pursued Wenger for a little while, but you know, being this this moralistic, very kind of proud, it, it, he stuck to his values, and you mm-hmm. know, for all of the criticism of Wenger, you can you can probably categorically say. He's a good human being. Uh, mm-hmm. I love the quote that he says. You know, when he goes to heaven, God will ask him, "What did you What did you provide for the human race?" And he'd say, "Well, I provided good football." And um, and I think you know he's he's humble in many ways, Wenger, but he also had this this strong core belief, and he didn't want to leave Grandpa's eight before his contract ran out. He'd he'd never abandoned a contract. And also the second point was he didn't want to leave the club in, in any problems. He wanted to make sure whoever took over from him was the right person. And again, that just embodies the, the brilliance of the man. And that probably mm-hmm. was what appealed to David Dean. Um, and I think David Dean was so, so instrumental. You know, he'd met with him many times to try and convince him. There'd been on many discussions, chats. And Dean was a brilliant kind of dealer in terms of football. Mm. He, he was great at greasing palms and, and getting things over the line. And, you know, the personal kind of side of, of David Dean and Wenger, he's, he's talked about many times, and as I mentioned earlier, in his autobiography, Wenger can't say enough nice words about David Dean. But the, the whole point was, yeah, he, he was so, so instrumental. I don't think mm. there would have been an Arsene Wenger at Arsenal without it because it was so out there. But it also mm. shows the forward-thinking nature of David Dean that he saw this guy that was, you know, moralistically good. He, he had this strong philosophy and belief set, but also the football he'd observed was great. And the fact that Wenger could bring all these different things that a lot of British managers didn't have at the time, you know, the management of, um, you know, their diet, their training methods, Mm. all these things. David Dean saw that as well and and thought, we need that at Arsenal. And in many ways, obviously, Wenger brought that to the club, but Dean kind of identified that we need somebody to bring Mm. that to the club. So, yeah, I don't think you can over-egg the souffle that is Dean bringing him to Arsenal. And, And I think on the flip side as well, a lot of the problems with Arsenal after the building of the stadium can be linked to the fact that David Dean left. You know, mm-hmm. with great football clubs and great eras, they have, you know, teams that work behind them. With Ferguson, you you had, uh, I think it was Ed Woodward, or it might not have been Ed Woodward. It was another director of sport, but anyway. Well, he so did... Maybe Martin Edwards before that. That was it, Martin Woodward. Edwards. Yeah. Now, they worked in tandem with each other. Ferguson on the pitch, uh, Edwards off the pitch, you know, kind of doing these deals. Dean was exactly the same. Dean mm-hmm. could ring up anybody and everybody in the Premier League. And he was he was great. You know, he, he kind of cut through the partisanism of, of Tottenham mm-hmm. Arsenal or, or Arsenal with Manchester United. And he'd go, you know, Alex, let's talk to Sir Alex. And they would, you know, they respected him. And I think this was part of the problem with Arsenal, that it lost a a huge thing with the whole debacle over getting Stan Kroenke in and David Dean Mm. was pushed out. Uh, They lost a huge asset there. And I think the club would would probably have still had the financial struggles, don't get me wrong, but the negotiations on contracts, a lot of the things that Arsenal now talked about now in hugely negative terms would mm-hmm. have been handled better with David Dean. So he ushered in the Wenger era and, and maybe in many ways he kind of set to it that it was the end as well. Not not for his own doing, not at all. David Dean wouldn't have wanted Arsene Wenger to go. But the fact that Arsenal turned their back on David Dean then stopped Wenger from facilitating these great mm. moves as well. Absolutely. And again, sad ends, uh, but uh, everything has to come to an end. But it certainly began wonderfully uh, with that moment there. Get a double for the Gunners that season. And that Tony Adams goal brilliantly described, Jason, certainly fitting and befitting our Christmas cracking scores. Want to get your memories on that? 
uh, and the Arsenal run. Sure, there are many Gunners out there equally uh, reminiscing, and uh, maybe you were there also in your extra large uh, shirts. But uh, one of your Gunners memories in particular to that Tony Adams finish. Tweet at Verulam Sports. Uh, all other Christmas cracking goals, though, again, so many. And as always, there's only so much time for us to consider these things. So there's inevitably going to be so many that we miss. So please get involved. Tweet at Brown Sport, the quickest, the most efficient means of engagement. But do feel free to expand on views and email, as so many do, uh, sport at radiobrown.com. Please, it's your show every single bit, as much as it is as. But now... Moving on to my final uh, choice of the night. And um, I just couldn't but choose this because we haven't yet had a moment to say rest in peace. The greatest football of all time. Maybe one of the greatest sports people of all time. Diego Maradona. I'm taking us back to 1986, the 22nd of June, Mexico City. And I'm not really going to talk about Hand of God. Uh, although you can't refer to this quarterfinal fixture without at least referencing it. But in our Christmas cracking scores special, I'm going to talk about maybe the greatest goal of all time. It's certainly one of the best solo efforts. And again, this is not just hyperbole from Tony Rice. Uh, this second effort by Diego Maradona was voted by FIFA ahead of the 2002 World Cup, the goal of the century. So we'll just let that be framed thus. And just before I get into this again, I just want to say so much love, respect, admiration to uh, Diego Maradona for what he did on the pitch for his family at this sad time. I uh, just want to send so much love because Maradona was one of those footballers who transcended his sport, transcended almost life itself and reminded us all what we're capable of doing. Um, Godspeed, Diego, you were a legend. Um, died just a few weeks ago, the 25th of November. But yeah, back to this game. And of course, no VAR. And many people I know bemoaning VAR at the moment. I know you and I fall in that category. But come on, let's have an honesty check. Let's just for one second talk hand of God. How many of you would wished we'd had VAR back then? And if you had isn't up, you're a liar. So that's all I'm going to say. One little pro on VAR. I knew we'd find it one day, but there we go. But no, I don't really want to go into that. That's the last. I'm drawing a line into that first effort. It was the first of a brace for Maradona. And it was a 2-1 Argentinian victory over England in the quarterfinal. Uh, Diego Maradona would go on to win the golden ball for the player of the tournament. Argentina would go on to claim the title. Five goals, five assists from maybe the greatest footballer of all time in maybe his crowning glory, this World Cup. And his second goal, just four minutes later after that, should we say, slightly dubious first, was, as I say, one of the best individual solo efforts all time. He would dribble effortlessly past Beardsley and then Reed. He then glide past Butcher before going past Fenwick. Then almost just to almost put an exclamation mark under his excellency. He then went past Butcher for a second time. Butcher was an immense defender, very hard to beat once, let alone twice. And he would then slot with such smooth finish, having moved at such speed past Chilton. For the second, which would go on to be the uh, crucial victorious goal in a 2-1 win, both of the goals in the game coming from the magician that is and was Diego Maradona. Goal of the century, this was voted in by FIFA 2002. Uh, you know, that's a century's worth of efforts. There have been Eusebio in that time. Of course, we've referenced Pelé and so many others. Puskets as well. So many great goals in the 20th century. Voted number one was that effort where there is no debate. There's no need for VAR. Just human exceptional skill stood out and stood up to be tested as i say maradona went on to claim the golden ball for the player of the tournament quick aside gary lineker got england's uh, goal in this 2-1 de uh, defeat and gary lineker would win the golden boot with six goals that tournament so for saying england went out here uh, at the quarterfinal stage great effort there from Lineker but there's no question about it this was Maradona's World Cup and his 
Argentinian team would go on, as I say, to hold aloft the World Cup, having beaten England in the quarterfinals. Final point, again, I don't want to get too political. It is a fun sports show. But of course, this meant a great deal coming just a mere four years after the end of the Falklands War. Again, every now and again, individuals like Maradona, just in a sporting context, stand for, embody a nation and national pride. And yeah, hand of God aside, this world effort, this solo dribbling, mazy run, and then the just almost assassin-like calm to still have the presence of mind to slot past Chilton at the finish was sublime. It's amazing. I just think it's a Christmas cracker. It's certainly goal of the century, so I can say no further. But just, Jason, your thoughts, uh, your memories, again, obviously precedes you slightly, but I know as a scholar of the game of football, you must appreciate and have thoughts on the iconic Diego Maradona. Yeah, I think what I almost like about this game and you know I do have to go back to the hand of God is that this both goals kind of show both sides expose the the nature of Maradona this maverick this person that yeah like you said transcended the sport he went above and beyond logic and and any sort of kind of questions with it you know the hand of God goal was nefarious uh, was rule breaking but again that was Maradona he played football in his own style and even to think of that comment that this was the hand of God to to assist him was so him Uh, and then just real quickly Jason on that I'm going to make two super quick points on it since since uh, again you can't really talk about this 86 (laughs) quarter final without it can we I guess quite frankly but first things first um it, there's no question about it. He has just had them. There's no debate. Everyone could see that. If there was VAR, it would be ruled out, blah, blah, blah. Right? But he was eight inches shorter than Peter Shilton. And he leapt. He got massively off the ground and granted, obviously, finished it with his hands. But again, that just shows the temerity of the man, doesn't it? Mm. And that refusal to lose. But what I really love about it, if you read into this, if he hadn't been a footballer, he could have been a great salesperson because he literally turned around to his place. He obviously knew what he did. He turned around <laughs> to his place, beckons them forward, say, hug me, hug me. Otherwise, the referee will not believe that that was uh, ahead. And again, it's that presence <laughs> in that moment, that maverick spirit, to appreciate what needed to be done to really sell the deal. I think that's fabulous. But go on, Jason, you were saying. No, I, I love it. And, and this, again, adds to it. I think it shows both sides of the genius that was Maradona and why he will live on. Um, but, yeah, the second goal was... Uh, sorry, I, I don't know which order they came in. It, it escaped. The hand of God was on 51 minutes. The uh, goal of the century that I focused in on was four minutes later. So it was the goal of the century that followed the hand of God. Yeah, so the, the second goal was just an expose of his individual brilliance as a footballer, you know, the skills. And uh, it it was, again, another one, uh, a joy to watch. And I think probably FIFA got it right in that sense. Maybe that game should just be the game of the century because it just shows the two kind of different aspects that we see week in, week out with football. Uh, And Maradona himself, you know, in that World Cup and so many times... He took his team by the scruff of the neck and, and delivered it. You know, they weren't filled with superstars. I mean, arguably, mm-hmm. you could say that that England team probably had more superstars, more talent. But yep. you just can't put a measure on the individual billions of Maradona. And, you know, what I say sometimes is is the true measure of maybe what we call goats, greatest of all times, mm-hmm. are these players that can do that, that... One of your favourite quotes, seize the day. 